Greetings, friends. You've come to the right place. This is Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from the top of the historic Hayburn Building here in beautiful downtown Louisville at 106.5 FM on live streaming to the world. Maybe you're listening to us anywhere in the world, perhaps on indigenous lands somewhere on planet Earth, on Turtle Island at forwardradio.org. And if you're not listening there, we want you to go there and make it part of your new year, 2021, to get involved in this community radio station that was built for the people, by the people. It's all volunteer run. We'd love your help behind the microphones or behind the scenes. So go to forwardradio.org and click on participate today. If you got an idea for a show you'd like to do, whether it's a weekly program like this or a one-time access hour or just being a guest on another person's program, go to forwardradio.org and let us know what you're interested in doing. And also while you're there, please chip in a few bucks to keep us on the air and strong throughout 2021, uh, broadcasting 24-7, 365 for only $20 a day. Yes, you could be a day sponsor here at Forward Radio. Well, my name is Justin Mogg, and what we do on Sustainability Now is take a deep dive into issues of social, economic, and environmental justice. And often what we do is look at the world from a completely different perspective on this program. That's what I really like to do, is sort of open your minds to different ways of seeing this planet. And I think there's really no better way to do that than to put ourselves in the shoes of the original oppressed peoples of the Americas, and those are the indigenous people of this land who have been so long forgotten and yet have so much to share with us. Uh, there is so much we can learn from the perspectives of people who lived for generations and generations over millennia on these lands without destroying them without barely leaving uh, an indelible mark. Although we know that indigenous peoples had incredible impacts on the land because of a positive relationship with this land and the fellow beings that uh, better than human beings that they shared this land with. And, and that today we, we push to the margins and try to destroy or ignore uh, when in reality, we are natural beings and we rely on the rest of nature to sustain us. And we need to get away from that um, very human-centric perspective and see things in a more functional, natural capacity. And that is why I am so thrilled to be bringing you one of my favorite moments from this year just passed, from 2020. I had the pleasure back on October 22nd of attending uh, the conference of the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, AISHI, and they featured as a 2020 keynote speaker the amazing Robin Wall Kimmerer. Robin is a mother, a scientist, a decorated professor, and an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. Her first book, Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for Outstanding Nature Writing. And her other work has appeared in Orion, 
Whole Terrain, and numerous scientific journals. She tours widely and has been featured on NPR's On Being, and in 2015 addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations on the topic of healing our relationship with nature. She currently lives in Syracuse, New York, where she is a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. In this session, she was interviewed during the end Q&A by Erica Bailey Johnson, my colleague, sustainability director at Bemidji State University in Minnesota. So, Sit back, relax. This is going to really open your mind to new ways of thinking. And Robin Wallkimmer is just such a delight and a treat and a calming presence to listen to. I can't think of a, a better way to wrap up the first month of the new year than by looking back to this great, great address given by Robin Wallkimmer here on Forward Radio. I would say bonjour, Jayak. Shabadaske gish kokwena deshnikas. Budwe wad mi kwenda, megeze do dem, minwa, makodo dem, minwa, mikwech, kinegego, gomi jong. In our beautiful Potawatomi language, I've told you that my name is Light Shining Through Sky Woman. I am an Anishinaabekwe Potawatomi woman of the citizen Potawatomi nation. I am of the Bear Clan and, and also of the Eagles. Um, and I'm so grateful to be here with you. And I know so many of us are, are trapped inside without our beautiful relatives around us. And so let's bring them forward as we talk together today. Um, and this is to begin us with our traditional protocol as well, which is to always begin with gratitude. And might we remember that this morning we've put our feet on Shkakmukwe and on, on Mother Earth and we had everything that we needed. We had that first drink of water and a breath of beautiful fall air. We had food to drink. We had the companionship of clouds and, and birds and, and trees. So much gratitude for all that we are, are given. I also want to give gratitude to the original peoples in whose homelands I reside here in the heart of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy on the ancestral and contemporary land and in our particular context, a debt of knowledge of how we might best care for the earth. I think it's also very important in this moment to recognize that um, we are in a moment when the interests of sustainability are, are not unnecessarily being advanced at the highest levels of government around the world and certainly here. And that puts into even stronger importance our work as sustainability leaders so that we can lead the way for our as a model to our students and to our community. I want to recognize not only that I and the institutions that each of us represent are currently occupying Indigenous homelands, which were in most cases dishonorably obtained and that we continued to benefit from the legacies of colonialism. We're educating our students, conducting research, practicing Western academic culture, holding academic ceremonies and earning wealth on lands whose original inhabitants cannot practice their lifeways 
their ceremonies, their science on their own homelands. And I'm very proud to say that my own institution, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, years ago issued an acknowledgement that our university occupies lands belonging to the Onondaga Nation. And our administration made the choice to fly the Haudenosaunee flag on our campus. And through our Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, this question of where we stand is that we are committed to standing and honoring the responsibilities that come with that debt of land and harm, both historic and ongoing. It begins with telling the truth. And how could we as educators do anything but? And the question for all of us as we gather today is how do we go beyond land acknowledgement to grow toward real sustainability, toward justice, a just transition for land and people, to act honorably to contribute to decolonization in education through our commitments to sustainability. As we gather under this common purpose of leading for sustainability in higher education, I want to express my gratitude to all of you who in your home institutions are reaching toward these three pillars of sustainability. And I know that sometimes we're all swimming upstream, but we can take a lesson from the, the salmon. When it's hard swimming upstream, we can swim together and know that we are not doing this work alone. And our shared mission is, of course, reflected in this well-known description of sustainability as the three-legged stool, etc., in which we recognize that sustainability that we seek encompasses economic well-being, ecological well-being, and social well-being, which are all connected in our understanding of sustainability, and we seek a balance among them. So I want to just stir up that notion of sustainability uh, just a little bit in, in my uh, remarks this morning. The realm of social equity has often received less attention and investment than conventional sustainability goals, such as renewable energy, waste reduction, infrastructure, etc., but of equal importance. And even though I am a biologist, I've chosen to focus today in the arena of inclusion of diverse cultural perspectives that can advance us towards sustainability. Perhaps beginning with our notion of what sustainability is. And I want to tell you just a little story about that. A story shared with me by a, an Algonquin biologist, Carol Crow. She was applying to her tribal council for a travel grant to go to a meeting on sustainability, just as we are gathered here. And so um, she went to her council and they said, well, what's sustainability? And, and she kind of smiled to herself saying, well, it is the way that our people have lived well on this land since time immemorial. But here are the definitions of, of sustainability that, uh, that others might recognize. And they're all familiar to you, of course. But as we examine them, she said this, all of these to her tribal council, this notion that the land could continue to provide benefits, ensure the attainment and continued satisfaction of human needs. Her elders listened and they were really quiet. And she said that she was afraid they were going to turn down her request. But instead they said, yes, we want you to go 
we want you to go to that next meeting, to that meeting and to carry this message. Next slide, please. They said to her, this sounds to me, those definitions, like they're just trying to find a way to keep on taking. It's always just taking. It's not our right. When your feet hit the ground in the morning, we should be thinking, what shall we give? And this reframing of sustainability away from how can we keep taking to what do we have to give from exploitation to reciprocity, their insight allows us to see the assumptions of worldview in our thinking about sustainability. And that little bit of a story invites us to shift our thinking to reciprocity, to what can we give? In fact, as educators, every one of us, I want to also share with you a conversation with a Potawatomi uh, elder and, and teacher. And we were talking about what does education mean? And he said, so Robin, what do you think is an educated person? And I gave some probably standard and poor academic answers. And he said, well, in the Potawatomi way, what we think of as an educated person is somebody who knows what their gifts are and how to give them in the world. And this perspective had never appeared on my, my sustainability syllabus in the past or in my curriculum. And I think this is a profound way to think about our goal as educators, to help people learn how to give their gifts in the world. And this focus on indigenous notions of science, sustainability, and our role in the world was certainly absent from my early education in higher education, on my journey to become a plant ecologist, which began one fall many years ago. But I want to tell you just a little bit about it. I was going off to forestry school, and I knew I would be one of the only women there, and certainly the only Native woman there. And so I was really preparing myself for, for this transition at a time when my favorite plants, the goldenrod and asters, were blooming in the fields all around us here in, in upstate New York. And so when my professor said to me, why do you want to study botany, Miss Wall? I had my answer ready and I told him I want to know why goldenrod and asters look so beautiful together. And he looked at me and said, well, that's not science. If you wanted to study beauty, you should have gone to art school. And I was so surprised. I thought, oh, well, I tried again. I said, I also want to know why the plants make us medicine. And I want to know why willow bends so well for baskets, but uh, maple doesn't. And he said, also not science. But here, come to the university and I will teach you what plant science is. This is why I look so happy on my first day at college in my freshman photo. I had no rejoinder. I was so embarrassed. I was sad. I thought, oh, I must have totally mistaken what ecology and botany were. I thought they were about why is the world so beautiful and how do we keep it that way? I thought that my way of knowing had no role in the university. And in fact, it didn't. It reminded me of my grandfather's first day at, the, at 
at higher education, if you will. His first day was at the Carlisle Indian School, a residential school where he was taken as a nine-year-old boy from his reservation to this school where he was forbidden to speak his language, think his own thoughts. And I thought this powerful engine of assimilation is still at work in education. His first day at school mirroring mine where we learned that our ways of knowing were not needed. And if you're just tuning in, we are listening back to one of my favorite highlights here on Sustainability Now from the year just passed, back on October 22nd, when Robin Wall Kimmerer spoke to the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education in a massive global virtual conference. Robin Wall Kimmerer is director and founder of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment and a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology in Syracuse, New York, author of the amazing book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And we return you now to her October 22nd address here on Forward Radio. Look at those faces of those children. Imagine the losses of knowledge, of human potential, of what we'd call sustainability solutions that arose from this act of colonization and forced assimilation. The very ideas that we seek for today were systematically eradicated or attempted to. Much was lost, but much remains and is resurgent. It has been guarded by knowledge holders against all odds. And in fact, our elders say that this knowledge was fiercely protected with the knowing that one day it would be needed by the whole world, and indeed that the earth herself would need it. In moving from my childhood to the university worldview, I unknowingly had crossed a boundary from the indigenous worldview to the Western one, in which in the, in the education in which I was immersed, this is what land means, land through the eyes of the colonizers who came here because land is property, because they viewed land as capital, as natural resources, and as ecosystem services, those, if acknowledged, um, those, those uh, ways that provide for us little things like air to breathe. This is the lens of the colonizer in the Western scientific worldview unlike the indigenous lens in which land is understood not as property, but as identity, land as our sustainer, land as a residence, not just for people, but for our more than human relatives as well, as our connection to our ancestors. What I really want to say here is land as everything, land as inspirited, as home, as our library, as our teacher, as our healer, and not land as a place for which we claim property rights, but land as a place for which we bear moral responsibility because land is sacred. In the university, the Western world, you prevailed thinking about humans and nature as quite separate from one another, as opposed to the indigenous worldview where our very identity um, is wrapped up in land. We are uh, the natural world. And this 
question that brings us all together as sustainability practitioners is what does land mean ultimately? Is it resources or is it relationship? Is land a source merely of belongings or is it in fact the most profound source of belonging? I'm very proud to tell you that right down the hall from the place where my professor told me that essentially that indigenous ways of knowing were not science and did not belong in the university, we today have the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Our mission is to bring together the tools of Western science and the guidance, philosophical guidance of indigenous wisdom for our shared concern for Mother Earth. We are dedicated to this mission that um, uh, Merdina and Albert um, Albertson brought for us this notion of two-eyed seeing, that we know more together than we do apart. Can we look at the world with an indigenous lens and a Western lens in complementarity to arrive at better solutions for our relationship with the earth? A worldview of interdependence and mutual flourishing um, replaced by this worldview of human exceptionalism. When we look at these two diagrams of what does the world look like through the Western lens and through the organic lens or the indigenous lens, so different. These are, that is really the lens of the colonization of the mind that we come to think of ourselves as separate at the top of some perceived hierarchy where the gifts of the earth are, um, we are more entitled to them than any of the other millions of species with whom we share the planet. This notion of human exceptionalism is part of the colonization of the mind. It's a kind of intellectual imperialism and I think that we are now experiencing the consequences of these, this worldview shift. So let's consider when we think about colonizing education to know that this colonization affects us all, that all of our minds have been colonized with the Western worldview. A worldview that asks not what can we give, but a worldview of what can we take and how do we shift that lens towards sustainability. What I really want to, to say here is this notion that um, sustainability in the long run, I think is threatened by the colonization of our minds by the fully Western worldview that is centered in, in capitalism and colonialism, which have created this economy of extraction that disproportionately threatens indigenous peoples and in fact, all beings. So part of our work as sustainability practitioners is decolonizing education. That um, while we will need every technology to advance us towards sustainability, we also can make great strides as we change minds, influence the ways that we perceive the world. Because all of you who have taken Bio 101 know that biological evolution is propelled by diversity, right? By genetic diversity. Cultural evolution towards sustainability, which we so need, is driven by intellectual diversity, by cultural diversity. And in our sustainability work, we need to consider multiple 
ways of knowing so that we might move away from the worldview of human exceptionalism so that we're not educating for the Anthropocene, but educating for what has been called the Symbiocene, a time of mutual flourishing in the world where we educate our next generation. Do we want, are we educating them to be consumers or to be ecological citizens, to participate in an extractive economy or a regenerative economy? These words echo those of one of my great teachers and of course a global environmental indigenous leader, Chief Oren Lyons of the Onondaga Nation, who after a lifetime spent in doing sustainability work says that our future boils down to four words, values change for survival, that it's our ideas that need to change, not just the way we do business. Oren, as a Hodit member of the Haudenosaunee, is embraced in this model of how we understand sustainability in the world through the Haudenosaunee teachings of one bowl and one spoon, that these gifts of Mother Earth come to us in a finite bowl, right? It's finite. We have to keep it full because when it's empty, it's empty. And notice that there is one spoon for this bowl to serve the gifts of Mother Earth. Not a big one for some and a tiny one for other. One bowl, one spoon. A powerful metaphor. I want to move now to another set of metaphors around how we might decolonize education and learn to see with both eyes to bring together the indigenous and the scientific worldviews for sustainability. One of the important metaphors, I think, in the public, often the public perception of, of, of Western science is that it is a fortress, a fortress up on the hill, removed from everyday people who are, for the most part, not scientists. And the fortress includes inside its walls kind of a monoculture of, of a way of being, scientism, this notion that, that Western science is the only way to understand the world. Why do we choose the fortress? I choose the metaphor of the fortress because Western science, as a practitioner myself, I'm well aware of the way that we build our knowledge through reductionist knowledge systems, brick by brick. It's conducted by specialized workers, mostly inside the walls of that fortress. Knowledge is understood very often as property, as intellectual property, and even a commodity, which is not always freely shared. The way that knowledge in this fortress monoculture is, is, is created is strictly materialist. It, it relies solely on the scientific method, and we express it as scientists in a way which excludes the participation of, of most of the citizens. This model of science as the fortress is perhaps oversimplified, it certainly is, but is has, has strong elements of truth, particularly in public perception. But we know that science alone is a not a model which, which we can embrace. Multiple ways of knowing come together 
to essentially dismantle that fortress and let other ways of, of knowing in so that we can engage intellectual pluralism in service to the thriving of all cultures and the living world. And as the fortress model of science alone um, is dismantled, what might replace it? What can we find in indigenous ways of knowing that inspire us to a different pathway? Next slide, please. If we look, oh yes, to say that um, this the, the operative word here is not Western science or traditional knowledge, not at all. The important word is and, that we use both of them. I love Kenny Ossiebel's words that we're going to need the enduring knowledge of Western science as well as indigenous knowledge. It's high tech meets high tech. How do we have them meet? The uh, Gaswenta, the two-row wampum, it's an indigenous model of political sovereignty that says that settlers and indigenous peoples agree to share the river of life. There's plenty of abundance here for all of us, and we can both care for the river of life. But you would see two parallel rows, one referring to the colonizers in their ship, and another, the indigenous peoples in our canoe. And they run parallel to one another. It's a model of coexistence and autonomy that says the settlers will not try to steer the canoe and the canoe will not try to steer the ship and we will both care for the river of life. Well, we know that through history since the beginning of colonization here on, in North America, Neither of those agreements have been honored. So we think about how can we think about models of, of, of knowledge sovereignty, of, of, of indigenous knowledge running parallel and, and coexisting with, with scientific knowledge it can be a powerful model. But I worry that because we're not caring very well for the river of life, we need a model not of coexistence, but of symbiosis. And in my remaining time, what I'd like to do is to share a mo another metaphor with you that we use at the Center for Native Peoples in the Environment to help us be guided in creating relationship between Indigenous and Western sciences. So this metaphor comes from the Indigenous agricultural sciences who brought us the genius of the Three Sisters polyculture. And what we're trying to do is to follow the lead of the plants and cultivate a mutualism, a productive mutualism among knowledge systems. Um, if you're not familiar with a Three Sisters garden, um, it is corn, beans, and squash all growing together producing much more food together than they would if they were grown alone. And the three plants help each other out. They're complementary to one another. The corn provides access to light. The bean provides fertilizer. And the squashes, they keep the soil moist and cool and um, keep out the weeds. Why a garden metaphor? Because in a garden, both T-E-K and S-E-K are rooted in the earth, that we are going to be much more productive in sustainability if we use them together, that they grow and they develop. This isn't static. This is a work in progress of planting and cultivating this 
knowledge garden. And very importantly, in the Three Sisters Garden, there is no compromise of identity. We often hear about, well, let's blend Indigenous knowledge and scientific knowledge. In blending, especially when there's a power differential, we know what happens. The identity of each can be lost. In a Three Sisters garden, what those plants tell us is that each of those plants needs to be there, sovereign and whole, in order to bring their gift to the garden. We think about corn as the intellectual scaffolding. In this garden, you always plant the corn first. It is the elder knowledge in our knowledge garden as well. If Indigenous knowledge is included in higher education, it's often as a sidebar as an add-on, right? But in this model, we center it as the elder knowledge, the intellectual scaffolding for the knowledge symbiosis. So the corn is planted first. And when you then plant the beans after the corn has been established, importantly, giving room for the traditional knowledge to grow and flourish, and then introduce the younger knowledge the beans, who I think are a metaphor for the powerful, curious, wandering ways of, of Western science that have so much power and beauty in their own. But you know, if you only plant beans without the corn, the beans take over everything. They're not nearly as productive and they reduce the productivity of all the other plants in the garden. And this is a cautionary metaphor that the beans, because Western science explicitly separates itself from values, and Orrin Lyons counsels us that it's values that will ensure our survival. This model is a model of beans being guided by the values of corn, if you will, of knowledge generation, which is informed by the principles of indigenous wisdom. I've listed for you here those five R's of Indigenous environmental philosophy. When we get together and talk about this, the list grows from five to 50. Um, but here are, are, are the perhaps the, the most important guiding elements of Indigenous philosophy, the way that corn might guide the beans through respect, through the imperative of relationship, through responsibilities that we bear as humans, through reciprocity that we are called to give our gift in return for everything that has been given to us and reverence for the natural world. And the squash. The squash is the one that creates the microclimate for the corn and the beans to grow, keeping out the weeds, keeping the soil moist. And in fact, friends, you and I in an knowledge symbiosis. We are the squash. In our educational institutions, can we create a microclimate where multiple species of knowledge can grow? Next slide, please. This has been called by the great Indigenous scholar and writer, Willie Ermine, the ethical space of engagement, a place between worldviews that opens up models for innovation, for configuring new models through cross-cultural interaction. And so in summary, this model that guides our engagement with, keep going with, with um, between Indigenous and Western ways of knowing is that we think about 
centering traditional ecological knowledge as a values-oriented guide towards science so that we create that ethical source of engagement. And in closing, remember that there is in fact a fourth sister in the Three Sisters Garden, the one who chooses the seeds, who saves the seeds, who plants the seeds, who tills the soil and keeps the weeds down. To plant a knowledge garden, to plant a, a mutualistic garden between indigenous and Western ways of knowing is our responsibility as educators and sustainable practitioners. So that we might go forward into a time when we understand that an educated person is the one who knows their gift and how to give it in the world. Thank you. Meet you, miigwech. Miigwech, Robin. <laughs> I, I think your words somehow make it all the way into my bones. <laughs> so I just want to, mm -hmm. yeah, just thank you for sharing with us. I know that I, that we have a few questions and I, and I would love to present those to you. And one of the questions that I get really often, we have a very similar program at Bemidji State University. It's called Niju Guayacocha Gawin. And it's a program, Niju um, is the Ojibwe word for two ways. And then Guayacocha Gawin is doing the right thing in the right way. And we often also talk about the two row wampum and the Western science and indigenous lens. I know questions that we get a lot on our campus or out in our region when we talk about this program are about appropriation and about non-indigenous people's use, you know, of, of that in their classrooms or in their programming and events. And I guess if you could speak to that a little bit, I know, I know some people on our campus call it the imposter syndrome, <laughs> where they feel like because they're not indigenous, they aren't feeling like they have the place to share some of this information. So I'd love if you could maybe share a little bit about that. Yes, we've faced this as well. It's a it's it's a really important element of our work of what to share, how to share it. I always like to begin by remembering that since you couched this appropriately in terms of fears of cultural appropriation, that appropriation is taking what doesn't belong to you without permission, right? But if indigenous educators and scholars have gifted you with a way of knowing and a way of thinking that says, here, this is a way that one might proceed forward. This is a, a potential model. It is not appropriation if it has been gifted to you, but that doesn't absolve one of the responsibility that comes with the gift, which is always acknowledgement. You know, I think about in academia, we always cite our sources. And this is so important in working with traditional knowledge as well, to honor the lineage and the genealogy of ideas and stories and songs. You know, Erica, we wouldn't tell a story without saying who we heard it from, right? What clan? brought that story forward, um, that, that, that acknowledgement is, is very, very important. 
The other thing that I want to say about that is that I think that models and metaphors from indigenous ways of knowing can be really important spurs and inspiration to creating one's authentic relationship with place as colonizers, as settlers, that there's no need to take from other cultures to express your own love and commitment to the to the earth. Um, find your way um, through your ancestral paths or in the, if there is no visible ancestral path, the very fact that the earth feeds you, the earth gives you a drink of water every day, the earth gives you berries for goodness sake, you belong here. Create your own authentic relationship with place. Miigwech. Mm. <laughs> I know another question relates to, you started with a land acknowledgement. And I really value that. And I, I really resonate because we're, we're in that process right now on our campus. And, um, and, it, and it's something that's, I think, a really important step. And I think I, I just want to, again, emphasize and have you help us understand, like, that's a part of this next, like, piece. Like, a land acknowledgement is one one part of what we need to be doing on our campuses is learning where we're at, who's here, um, the history, the culture of the land and the place and the people. And then to also think about once we have this land acknowledgement, what are those next steps? And especially Robin being at a higher education institution for yourself, what, what do you feel like are those, I, I mean, I just keep thinking about on our own campus, like human resource practices of hiring, of higher learning commission <laughs> requirements, of um, protocol with, with community. Uh, what do you think are the best steps from your experience in the after land acknowledgement step? <laughs> Thank you so much for opening that question and I wanna hear your talk about it because it needs to be framed in beyond land acknowledgement. To say, what do we, when we recognize our complicity and our, and our role in history and the fact that every one of our universities stands on indigenous homelands, what are the responsibilities that come with that? Um, that's why I chose to focus on decolonizing education so that what happens inside the walls of the university is an invitation to native students, to indigenous students, the kind of invitation that I did not get when I was a young student who was told, well, really you don't belong here, um, to open our doors wide for broader access for diverse peoples, for, for peoples from those homelands. And, but also to cultivate allies um, that every student in the university should know about treaty rights. Treaty rights are not native treaty rights. Treaty agreements were entered into by two sovereign nations. And so the, the settler society needs to know their treaty rights or their treaty obligations as well. So it then translates, I'm so glad you brought up things like hiring, um, to diversifying our faculty as well as our student 
body. Um, and to opening the doors to multiple ways of knowing not only where where the this so-called Western authoritarian model of, of knowledge gets eroded so that the knowledge in our communities, our scholars of the land, our scholars of the of the culture are also welcome in 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 the university. To have indigenous scholars and elders in residence, I think, can be a powerful step um, toward achieving that equity as well. There's so many things related to indigenous land governance, to access um, to um, university lands for native peoples to access once again their own homelands. Multiplicity of ways. Mm -hmm. Yay, Robin. I just want to thank you again for sharing with the audience today for being a part of this sustainability conference. It's always just, it's just an honor, honestly, to hear your words, everything that you're working on, um, all the ways that you're contributing to making things better. So I just want to really, again, say Chimigwich, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Mm. Miigwech, thank you everybody for, for, for listening and for the work we do in the world. And Erica, miigwech, bomapi. And that's how the October 22nd keynote address concluded at the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education by Robin Wall Kimmer, mother scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation in conversation there with Erica Bailey Johnson, my colleague as sustainability director at Bemidji State University in Minnesota. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed listening back to it. And I hope you'll stay tuned and get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened, my friends. Because this last week of January is no time to sit on your hands. It's time to get active in together in making sustainability a reality now here in Louisville. So stay tuned, my friends. sweet sounds of Apple Latin behind me now. Many, many thanks to them for giving us permission to use their fantastic local music on the podcast versions of our programs, which you can find on SoundCloud, and they're all archived there at forwardradio.org. You can learn more about them at AppleLatin.com. And you can get involved with us at forwardradio.org. Become a part of this community radio station. It's for you, by you. We want you behind the microphones and behind the scenes to help sustain the station throughout 2021. Maybe chip in a few bucks while you're there at forwardradio.org. That's just one of the many things you can do this week to help make Louisville more sustainable. 
This is a big week, so get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened. Yes, this is the week, as we promoted over a month ago on this program, the Organic Association of Kentucky, Oak, is holding their annual conference virtually this week from Tuesday the 26th through Saturday the 30th. It's the 10th annual Oak Conference, and it's all virtual so that everyone can stay safe and you can enjoy it from the comfort of your own home. So get ready for five days of learning and inspiration from 30 speakers, 25 sessions, farmer roundtables, and a trade show. The Oak Conference is a must for farmers, agriculture professionals, home gardeners, and anyone passionate about building more resilient food systems here in Kentucky. Sessions will cover an array of organic production tips, regenerative agriculture, livestock management, market farming, racial equity in agriculture, soil health, no-till farming, climate change, organic production, seed sovereignty, homesteading, and food systems change making. You can learn from experienced farmers and national speakers in live sessions, Q&A, daily roundtable discussions, and keynote speakers, including the amazing Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, and journalist Judith Schwartz. If you can't catch all the sessions live, recordings will be available for attendees for up to a year after the event. Registration is open at oak-ky.org. Get your tickets and secure access for this inspiring lineup of speakers and to connect with your farming community that sustains you here in Kentucky. Again, the Oak Conference is Tuesday through Saturday of this week. Find out more at oak-ky.org. Now, coming up on Thursday, the 28th, from noon to 1 p.m. online, there's going to be a great community conversation on housing justice. The Greater Louisville Project has posted the latest data for Louisville's housing situation, and it shows opportunities for improvement right down to the Metro Council district level. Local experts who are working on the front lines to battle overcrowding, evictions, and homelessness will share their knowledge during this one-hour conversation being hosted by the Greater Louisville Project and Metropolitan Housing Coalition. The moderator is Dr. Monica Unsell, Director of Community Engagement for the Greater Louisville Project. And the expert panel will include George Eklund, Education and Advocacy Director at the Coalition for the Homeless, Kathy Kuhn, Executive Director of the Metropolitan Housing Coalition, Celine Mutuyamaria, Community Health Coordinator at the Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center, Claire Wallace, Executive Director of South Louisville Community Ministries, Cassandra Webb, Director of Research and Innovation at Cities United, Ben Reno-Weber, Director of the Greater Louisville Project, and Teresa Zawacki, Executive on Loan at Russell, A Place of Promise. You can register on Eventbrite to join, check out the report, and find the link to register at greaterlouisvilleproject.org under events. And again, that's this Thursday the 28th at noon. Go to greaterlouisvilleproject.org for more information. Finally, last time we're reminding you about the Kentucky Conservation Committee's annual meeting and 2021 Legislative Summit that wraps up this Friday, the 29th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. It's virtual this year, uh, so a great opportunity for you to learn more about what's happening in the short session of the General Assembly this year and how you can be a citizen lobbyist for the planet. The third and final session on June 29th will feature clean energy and climate 
climate change issues. Kentucky has become a focal point for new large-scale merchant development of solar energy. While this is encouraging news for carbon reduction and the planet, it also presents new questions and challenges on the issue of where and how these projects develop, the kind of land it most impacts, and how these impacts affect our efforts to address carbon in both the land and energy sectors. Learn more about the nexus between land use and energy development during this informative session. Other energy and climate uh, trends will also be discussed. The presenters in this session will include representatives from solar development companies, farmland preservation groups, and state lawmakers. You can learn more and register for this free summit at kyconservation.org. Also, after that, getting towards the end of that, at noon on Friday, there's a couple other great uh, virtual events you might want to participate in. First, every Friday is the City Growers Virtual Chat Hour from noon to 1, including this January 29th. While we can't get together in person to talk about growing food in Louisville, there are opportunities to connect online. You can join Forward Radio's community partner, the Urban Ag Coalition, every Friday at noon to chat. You can share about your experience growing food in your garden, ask questions, share about what works for you, and connect with your neighbors. Register for the call at foodinneighborhoods.org slash grow under the calendar section. Or alternatively, Friday the 29th from noon to one online, you can join us for the first spring UofL EcoReps Workshop. The UofL Sustainability Council will be kicking off its monthly EcoReps Workshop series on Friday the 29th with a virtual presentation by Rana Kumar, who has been doing inspiring work in our community, connecting the dots between local food and local hunger. She's been growing food and feeding the homeless, and you really won't want to miss her inspiring story. EcoReps workshops are always free and open to the public, and now you can join us online from wherever you are without any pre-registration. Just find the link to join at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also want to remind you that Friday the 29th is the deadline to submit your comments about the extension westward of Waterfront Park and a new playground they're calling Playworks. The next phase in the westward expansion of Waterfront Park is coming and they are soliciting community input on Playworks, its first major component in the Phase 4 expansion. Playworks is a one-and-a-half-acre outdoor experiential learning area created in collaboration with the Kentucky Science Center that celebrates the waterfront's history by using authentic objects like tires, logs, and simple machines as a catalyst for families and kids to make play out of work. You can learn more and submit your feedback by Friday the 29th at playworks at ourwaterfront.org. Playworks at ourwaterfront.org. Also want to remind you that the Louisville Grows Community Garden Grant Workshops are taking place this Saturday, January 30th, 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Or you can join on Tuesday, February 2nd in the evening, 6 to 7.30 p.m. You can register for the workshop of your choice at tinyurl.com slash 
Garden Grant 2021. You're invited to attend one of the workshops and learn how to apply for these grants. A representative from the community garden must attend one of the workshops in order to submit a grant application. The virtual workshop will focus on the community garden toolkit, grant application requirements, and other benefits of the grant. The Louisville Groves Community Garden Grant provides funding for in-kind materials for new or expanding gardens managed by community organizations, garden clubs, after-school programs, neighborhood associations, faith-based organizations, and simply motivated community members. Groups may apply for funding of garden construction, soil preparation, seeds and starts, tools, rain barrels, or other irrigation methods, fencing, and or compost and other gardening needs. If a grant is awarded, groups are required to provide 10% in matching funds. All gardens awarded the grant will be designated as an official Louisville Grows Garden, which provides the benefits of garden signage, year-round technical and educational support, groups of volunteers as requested, social media promotion, and networking opportunities to ensure the community garden's long-term sustainability and success. So you can register for the workshop of your choice at tinyurl.com slash lggardengrant2020. And of course, you can learn more at louisvillegrows.org. Also, reminding you of the Forward Radio's proud community partner, the Urban Agriculture Coalition's Public Orchard Pruning Winter Workshops. Continuing this week, Urban Agriculture Coalition is helping neighbors to prune the community orchards throughout the city again this year. So come on out, dress warmly, and uh, let's prune some fruit trees together and help maintain these vital assets in our community. They will be providing all the pruning tools and instruction. You can learn more and sign up at tinyurl.com slash orchards2020. But the work continues here in the new year. Continuing on Saturday, January 30th, from 2 to 5 p.m., they'll be out at the Portland Orchard Project. They're on West Main Street at 21st Street. And it wraps up on February 7th from 2 to 4 p.m. with lots of food on Portland Avenue at 17th. Also, one final reminder that you can recycle your Christmas tree through January 30th at drop-off sites available for all Louisville and Jefferson County residents at four locations. At the Hubbard's Lane site, you can also instantly recycle your Christmas tree into mulch that will be offered back to you for home use. Reminder that all lights and ornaments should be removed from the trees before they are dropped off. And the hours and locations are as follows. It's Tuesday through Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. through January 30th. 30th at three different locations, the East District Recycling Center, 595 North Hubbard's Lane, the Public Works Yard at 10500 Lower River Road, enter from Bethany Lane, or downtown at the Waste Reduction Center, 636 Merriweather Avenue, and Metro Public Works will also provide curbside pickup of Christmas trees within the Urban Services District. Residents with City Curbside Yard Waste Pickup may set their trees and greenery out on their regular collection day for yard waste. And again, trees should not be in plastic bags and all decorations must be removed. Just put them out there on the curb naked. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I appreciate you tuning in and I wish you well in the coming week. I'll be back in your ears again in seven days. Bye, my friends. (music) 